Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble-rousers, freaks, and geeks who are shaking up the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and joining me in the co-host chair today is fellow chef and troublemaker, Charity Gibson with Green Banana Social. Today, we welcome Jake Director to the podcast. Jake founded Strideline at the age of 18 with longtime friend Riley Goodman and $700 cash in their pocket. Eight years later, Strideline has over 100 employees and is carried in thousands of retailers across the country, including Nordstrom, Macy's, Champs, Lids, and Costco. The pair still own 100% of the company and are committed to achieving their goal of selling every sock to every person on earth. I love these guys' ambition. It's amazing. Director led the company's entry into the promotional product space in 2014, and it has quickly turned in to the division with the fastest growth sales of the company. Our discussion with Jake today will take us on the roller coaster ride that has defined Strideline's journey since the beginning. And with that, Jake, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. So, Jake, I want you to tell me a little bit more about how Strideline got its start. Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of a funny story, actually. Riley and I were born six hours apart in the same hospital, actually, here in Seattle, Washington. We grew up just a few doors down from each other in Issaquah, the suburb of Seattle. Went to the same elementary school, middle school, high school, ultimately the exact same college here at the University of Washington. And basically, from as early as we can remember, we knew we wanted to start a company. So we rode the bus together, and in third grade, we started our first company. It was a t-shirt company. I don't think we sold very many t-shirts, but we continued to really, all the way through middle school and high school, want to start a business. And it was our senior in high school, and one of our buddies actually got into a pretty serious car accident. He ended up being fine. But that night, we locked ourselves in Riley's car and said, you know, if someone can figure out how to start a company, we can do it. And no one was making colorful crew socks at the time. And we were lacrosse players, and everyone wanted these colorful crew socks, and no one could figure out how to make them. So we basically said, look, we're going to figure out how to do this, and found a supplier in Turkey, and, and we were off. And so how old were you guys, like 16 years old at the time, or 17? Yeah, so we were 18, so it was just the end of our senior year in high school, and I think actually the first socks arrived, I know we were still in high school, so it was probably, I think the first socks arrived in May or something like that. I know we cut social studies class to go down to the airport and pick them up. So yeah, we were, we were 18. So you guys are 18 years old. You've got this entrepreneurial itch to go and sell socks to lacrosse players. Like, how did you know where to start and how were you able to source these products without getting fleeced, so to speak, <laughs> as 18 year olds yeah. going off to Turkey yeah. to go and order, you know, presumably a couple thousand dollars worth of stock and, and you know, you didn't have the money. So take me on that journey. 
Yeah, I mean, the truth is, especially looking back, we were incredibly lucky. I mean, we, we really had no clue what we were doing, and we just took the attitude, well, if someone can figure out how to source stuff, you know, so can we. Yeah. So we went on Google, and, and we tried to find a you know, supplier here in the U.S., and you know, for various reasons that wasn't going to work. So we said, okay, well, we can figure out how to you know, source these overseas. And I think we went on to tradekey.com, and you know, they just have a you know, database of tons of different suppliers, and found this guy in Istanbul, Turkey, named Umi Tokhtamis, and he Love made a, a sample for us. Yeah, he, he actually now sells mattresses. He hits me up on occasion to try and sell me some, but he... Uh, <laughs> But uh, really, really nice guy, and, and we designed the socks in Microsoft Paint, sent over the specs, and we sent it to a couple mills in China, too, but basically, you know, this guy made the first sample, and we each had 700 bucks. They're basically like gifts from graduating high school, and yes, we sent that money through Western Union, and miraculously, these socks actually showed up. Kind of in the following months, we ended up trying to source a bunch of other products from Asia, and like you said, got fleeced a number of times, so we tried to do sunglasses, a bunch of other random things, but seem to work for us. So I'll ask you one question and I turn it over to Charity. I'm so interested in businesses that start off in a particular niche where they gain a foothold in a very, very small segment of the market and then use that foothold in the market to expand into the mainstream. In your case, you guys were lacrosse players, so you understood that market very well. You were insiders there, so to speak. Did you ever have a vision that you were going to get beyond the lacrosse market? And if so, how did you chart your path from lacrosse to worldwide domination? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. We always viewed socks as a way to start generating some revenue to start whatever the real business would be. So right, we never funny. thought we would be doing apparel. We thought we'd, you know, who knows what it would end up being. But of course, here we are eight years later and we yeah. still only sell socks. But yes, we always, really from as early as we can remember, and it's, I mean, it's strange, but we always want to start you know, the biggest company in the world. I think that was our goal and in a lot of ways still is. And I think we recognize the odds that happening are incredibly small, but socks were just sort of this way to make some more money, kind of start that. And since we were lacrosse players, we kind of had an inside look into what lacrosse players would want and yeah, kind of went from there. Right. But it's interesting. I mean, you think about, you know, perhaps a neighbor of yours, you know, another Seattle native, Jeff Bezos, you know, he started selling books and now he sells everything. So <laughs> was he your inspiration? Yeah. Yeah, literally. You said you just wanted to start with socks and then you wanted to be the biggest company in the world? Yeah. I mean, pretty much. I, I think, you know, again, like we, the odds of us becoming the biggest company in the world is incredibly small, but we're really, really passionate about what we do. And the team we have here is really, really passionate about what we do. And, you know, I think, for us, socks is a great place to enter the apparel space just because there's not very many sizes and there's a lot of things that make it relatively simple. And, you know, as we get better and better at selling socks, I think ultimately we'll, you know, dive into other markets. Got it. Cool. Actually, that goes along with, I think, probably the next question I'm thinking of. One thing I can say about Sideline Socks is that they're not your average sock, which is hilarious. I found these guys because I did a spec sample for one of my clients was offered to me. I was like, well, hey, why not? You know, just give them some socks. And when I got them, the packaging is so badass. It's like matte black with a gloss black logo, which is amazing from the get. So you get this pack, you're like, well, this is freaking cool. What's inside? And then you open it up and it's these like performance socks, right? So it's not just like shapeless, dye sublimated, you know, piece of fabric. It's these like sporty with support in the arch and it makes you like want to put them on and go run somewhere. So I think that was probably something that 
<laughs> really impressed me. Just the whole experience of opening this package of socks. And then I had to give that pair of socks away. I was actually really sad because I couldn't keep them for myself. So I figured that's when you know it's a good product, right? When you you want to like steal it from the person you're supposed to give it to and just keep it for yourself. But they knew it was coming, so I had to turn it over. Um, <laughs> but along that line, I guess I would say from a scalability standpoint, you guys kind of touched on that. There are so many niche companies in this world that just stay super small, and then they decide to grow. And in order to do that, instead of innovating, like Origadio is one of the companies that actually is innovating to grow, but so many other companies add these like Me Too products and, oh, now we sell this and we sell that. And then everybody in our industry is selling the same product and the only thing they have left to compete on is price. So I guess my question would be, and you said you tried sunglasses and you thought about apparel, but where do you see socks going as an industry in the next, you know, 18 to 36 months just because it's so trendy? And how do you plan on staying relevant and continuing to grow without compromising your cool factor? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a lot of things about socks that, you know, again, we, we totally stumbled into the category as 18-year-olds, but there's a lot of great things about socks. And there's a lot that's changing with socks. So traditionally, socks have been knit. So 100% of the socks knit. You'll see, like, you know, the logo has is a little bit pixelated because there's only so much detail you can put into a traditionally knit sock. And about five years ago, people started sublimating on socks. And that's probably the socks that is mostly seen in the promo space. And basically what, what happens is when you sublimate a sock, you get this you get this super burnt kind of crisp feeling. And also when you stretch out the sock, you see these really ugly white lines. And so basically that was one of the most attractive things for us when we first kind of were discovering the promo market is that no one's really doing it the right way. And because basically due, due to our retail connections and our retail beginnings, Nordstrom had asked us four years ago to basically try and develop a sock that would have that same printed clarity and the super sharp imagery. But then when you stretched out, wasn't burnt and didn't have those ugly white lines. So basically for retail, we developed this process called digital ink, which, you know, if you check out like stradline.com, you'll be able to see the product. It's when the image actually stretches out, it maintains its integrity of the image. So the ink actually penetrates the yarn a lot further. And so what that allows us to do in the promo side of the business is that companies who want to have really exact requirements for their logos, we can match it exactly. Whereas like before, traditionally suppliers, when they have to knit it, not only is the logo really pixelated, but also it's very difficult to match the yarn specs exactly. So from that perspective, there's a lot of really cool things that we're doing that will continue to give us the edge in promo. So we're building, we'll actually release it likely at PPI Expo down in Vegas next year, but a brand new type of machine that we've built that basically takes this type of printing to the next level. So it's seamless 360 degree print. Um, so there's no really ugly white lines and it penetrates a lot further kind of getting away from your question, but basically we plan to innovate you know, and pour a lot of our investments into our company, into our product to make sure that not only is it a higher quality product, but we're also shipping it faster than everyone else and you know, improving our operations so we can really support our customers' needs. Well, that's super exciting to hear that you're you know, innovating not only in the product arena, but in the technology space to foster you know, just the advancement of our industry as a whole and the way that we do things from a system and process point. And I personally believe that's huge for our industry because there's a lot of fear in our industry and there's a lot of, like we said, competing on price because there's not as much innovation as I think there should be. And along those same lines, I guess I would ask you, so because retail trends, like what you're doing, are kind of making their way into promo, 
And I believe that there's an obvious need for what you guys do in our industry. And there's a couple companies that are doing it right, and it's a handful. You can really count them on one hand as far as how retail is impacting our industry. And I'm just curious, what challenges have you seen jumping from the promo space into the retail space? And how has that been? Just because you guys obviously started in retail, there's this weird fear in the promotional products industry that end buyers, you know, be marketed to using information after they order. Have you encountered any kind of pushback from distributors because of the presence you have in the retail space? And what would you say to distributors? Obviously, we're hungering for cool products, so we don't want to push you out because of this crazy fear. So what have you guys seen so far in that arena? Yeah, it's a great question. and It's something we struggled with a lot. So when we entered the space, I mean, we had no clue what we were doing. We were originally calling screen print shops and, you know, just no clue what ASI or PPAI or any of these industry bodies even were. So we had no clue that, you know, that selling direct wasn't okay. So, you know, originally brought out and we were selling to anyone who wanted custom stocks. And, you know, very quickly we started to understand, you know, the size and the power of this space and realized that, you know, selling direct was something that we needed to stop doing and we needed to stop doing quickly. But due to the fact that we are a retail brand and we do have a pretty substantial following on the retail side of the business, you know, obviously that created some problems. I think the hardest part for me, outside of just the revenue that we generate from, you know, that we did generate from selling direct, was the fact that we have some employees that have been working on our team for a long time and have built a great business essentially selling custom socks. In our case, particularly the youth sports teams, you know, it is really difficult to essentially penalize those employees and basically remove what they've been working so hard on because of the success we're finding in promo. So that was something we struggled with for quite a while. But as you know, we really realized how large the opportunity was here in the promo space, you know, it became more and more clear that we really needed to stop selling direct. Currently, as it stands, we're really clear with our distributor partners on what we do and, and don't do. So we do not, no matter what, sell direct to anyone except for youth sports teams. And if youth sports teams contact us, we will sell them direct. And this is sort of an ongoing policy, but right now it seems to be working pretty well. We're just very upfront with our distributor partners. And, you know, if you do sell youth sports teams, you know, potentially we might not be the best partner for you. But we've also found that most distributors are okay with that because it's generally a pretty small part of their business, if any. And I think that's ongoing for us. I think in a fairly short amount of time, we will stop selling direct at all. I mean, basically just remove the last group that we do sell direct to those youth sports teams. But it's just been a process for us. And, you know, internally, we need to shift employees around and make all that work. But we've, we've been pretty pleasantly surprised. As long as we're up front with distributors about it and they know of the situation, we haven't run into too much of a problem. That's cool. So you can see, obviously, the huge value in transparency, you know, just by even if you're going to do it, this is exactly what we do. This is how we do it. And people are typically okay with that as long as they know. That's cool. You know, I think that I echo what Charity is saying there in terms of just being transparent with regard to your policies. Like, that's the absolute best approach. And because you're retail, I think a lot of distributors understand that retail-oriented companies will have another side of their business where they are selling to certain accounts. And I think that in some ways, if you're really open about that, A, it establishes trust and honesty and that you're an honest supplier. And number two, I think it also adds a little bit of cachet because it means your brand is out there. It means that in particular, like you sports teams, like they may be influential with corporate accounts. And so that's not necessarily yep. the worst approach. I think it's just really essential to just be totally open book about your policies. So that way you don't set a distributor up for disappointment. Totally. 
there are instances that we've ran into it, and they're a lot less now because we get out in front of it, but there were instances, and, and on occasion they still come up, where there are distributors that are upset that said, hey, you know, in this case, I was working with this customer. They ended up going direct to you as a sports team or whatever it is, and we sold to them. And, and in those cases, what we'll do is we literally just write the distributor a check for what their profit would have been, really no questions asked. And that policy is, has seemed to work pretty well. You know, for us, it's really about the relationship. It's not about just a one-off order. So if someone really is upset or, you know, if anyone ever works with us and felt like we, you know, in some way their customer went around them, we'll, we'll just write them a check for what their profit would have been. Yeah. That's huge. And Mark, before we continue on, I was going to say, you said, you know, you think that most distributors have an understanding because they know that they came from the retail side of things. And I would actually disagree with you. I think in most cases, many distributors don't understand the value of the company that is given to them by getting their start in the retail arena. And so there's a value that we place on having these retail brands in our industry, but then we're upset because of that. And I think obviously what these guys are doing proactively, you know, making sure that they know these things are going to happen and here's our contingency plan for when something like this happens is awesome. But I think that there's a huge disconnect in what distributors understand. And that keeps a lot of retail brands from entering the space because they're not attacked in a way, but sometimes attacked because distributors don't understand that they're yeah. here serving our demographic because we wanted them to be here because we need their products in our space. But then they get here and they're faced with all of this, you know, change your business practices to serve us. And I don't think that should be the case. Like let the supplier dictate the terms and work with us like these guys are doing to, yep. you know, create a better space where everybody can survive and thrive and have cool products to serve our clients with. Otherwise, that will be the demise of the traditional supply chain, I think, in our industry is yeah. distributors not being willing to get it. So Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's no question I think there's fault on both sides. I mean, I think, Jake, as you're alluding to, when you first got into the space, you were retail people. Like you had cut your teeth in the retail world. You had generated great sales growth in retail. And you guys didn't even know about ASI or PPAI. And you get a call from, let's say, Google, and they're looking for Stride socks. Then, of course, you're going to sell it to them. And I think the thing is, is that you just haven't, as a retailer in general, have not been given the proper lay of the land. So I think that once you have been given the proper lay of the land, then you're able to make a very informed choice about how you're going to enter the market. And you've done so in a transparent, honest way. And I think that that's the solution. And I think also to assign blame for distributors, as you say, Charity, that I think there's a whole host of distributors out there that are really ignorant, (laughs) to be quite honest, when it comes to supplier business models. And they have to understand that not all supplier partners are going to be the right ones. So, Jake, that's what I love when you said, we may not be the right partner if you focus specifically on selling to youth sports teams. Like, you may set yourself up for disappointment working Strideline. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, there's there's a lot of great benefits that come from the fact that we sell retail, too. And I would imagine this is the case for a number of other suppliers that straddle. And a great example for us is we do 100% free spec samples always, completely unlimited. We cover shipping and all that. And, you know, the cheesy saying, specs get checks, really is true. And, and I think it's been a really valuable tool that we've offered distributors, and it's generated a lot of great relationships for us. But that wouldn't exist without retail. I mean, the reason that exists, like, if you go on stradline.com, as a regular consumer and buy one pair of socks, we actually make that pair that day in the Philippines and ship it directly to your door and you'll have it in three days. That product was made and shipped to you. So when we realized, oh wow, like people want specs in the promo space, it was like, oh easy. Well, we already pretty much have this program built. So all we need to do is just make some minor changes and we can offer this to distributors. So in that way, you know, yes, 
there's the negatives of, you know, the potential of a customer somehow coming to us direct. But, you know, there's a lot of great benefits that, that yeah. come with that as well. Good for you. I've got a quick question about how you position yourselves in the market. So you're obviously not the only supplier that's selling socks in the promotional product space or in the retail space. But if we specifically look at the promotional market, you're competing against a whole host of folks, like some that are made in the USA, some that are made in Asia, like you guys are. How do you position yourselves against all those other sock companies when a distributor says, why should I buy from Strideline versus company X? All right, yeah, thanks for asking. That's a great, great question. And really the reason that promo was, was so attractive to us. So the first thing is the product. You know, before we entered the space, the only socks available to suppliers were either traditionally knit socks where you get that pixelated logo and you don't have that many color options because you're limited by the yarn colors. Yep. The second option was a cheap dye sublimated sock where you get that ugly white grin and the sock super burnt. So what first was so attractive to us is that we could bring our digital ink technology and you know, offer a really high-quality sock that still had um, all the benefits of sublimation and didn't have that ugly grip. So the first thing was product. And then there's a lot of other things that really make us a lot different than any other supplier in the space. First, we have two-week rush available. So you do pay a 20% premium, but no one else in the market is close. I think the closest is four weeks, and we can offer them in two weeks. And we're actively working to get that down. You know, a lot of times... People have their stocks within seven to ten days, but we promise two weeks. We also do unlimited free specs, and those specs we can have you in three to four days. No one else does that. We do unlimited virtuals. We actually have, believe it or not, 30 designers making custom stocks all day. Most of the teams in the Philippines, but we do have some of the designers here. And basically, what that means is, you know, you can get a virtual back. You know, our goal is within an hour, but you know, at least two to three hours max. And if you want it expedited, you know, we'll have that to you in 15, 20 minutes. And then the final thing is really just about really the experience working with Stridewind. So, you know, and that's really the main thing we stress to our reps is that, you know, when you leave, well, whatever touch point you have with, with your distributor partner and the people you're building relationships with, you know, it can't just be like an okay experience. It's, it really is about exceeding expectations all along the way from when they first get in contact with you to how fast you turn around the virtuals to, you know, to when the socks actually arrive and then, you know, the follow-up experience thereafter. And, you know, really what we stress to our team is that, you know, for us, it's, this isn't just a, you know, one or two year push to meet the demand for custom socks. We really want to build, you know, long-term quality relationships with distributors and, and build their trust more than anything else. Hearing you guys talk about just how you got started and the age that you started. I mean, I started little businesses when I was in third grade. I started painting rocks and was trying to sell those and that didn't get me very far at eight years old. So, at 18, to be able to take a company from 700 bucks to the next year, you know, half a million in revenue, on up from there into the, you know, half a million, four million, it's just ridiculous. So I guess what I'm trying to say is you make me feel like I'm totally behind on life, and I'm also proud of you at the same time. So I'm really glad I know you. I count you in my list of people in my network. I guess one of the other questions that I have, I mean, talking about starting with $700 and then you know, if in a year surpassing the half million mark and three million, you know, in year two, like what kind of time in a day did that take for you guys to accomplish? And then how many people did you have helping you in order to make that happen? I know you said it was just, you know, you and Riley mostly at the very beginning and then obviously outsourcing with overseas partners. But when did you hire your first employee and, you know, what did that look like from a capital standpoint? And, you know, how did that kind of evolve? Because I think a lot of companies, don't know how to scale, and so they stay small and eventually fizzle out and die. So how did you figure that all out? Yeah, totally. 
Well, firstly, those numbers are for promos. We'd already been running the business for, I think, five years before we entered the promo space. Our retail growth was a lot slower to start. So, you know, that, I think the first year we were in business, we ended up doing like 25 grand in sales. We took that $700 and we literally sent it overseas, get the stocks and sell them out, buy more, sell them out, just keep doubling our money that way. And we more or less did that for the next three years. I mean, we were both accounting and finance students at the University of Washington, and we had a fantastic time in college outside of school as well. So, you know, I think it's just really the answer is really very slowly to start. And basically, we honestly didn't have a lot of help. We just knew that if we bought these stocks for less than we could sell them for, that, you know, we'd, we'd keep making money. And I, I, that's overly simplified, but, you know, really that was kind of how it started. We really got kickstarted when we sold a local shop here called the Seattle Team Shop. And it was like a local sports store. And they ended up getting bought by Lids Hat Store the big national chain. And more or less, we were one of the best sellers for the Seattle team shops. So Lids basically had to teach these two like 20-year-old kids how to sell a corporate retailer. And so a lot of funny stories there on like when we shipped the, we actually routed the stock through a local FedEx and uh, all these pallets were sitting there at like the retail FedEx or all this kind of stuff. But basically once we got into Lids, then we got into Nordstrom and from Nordstrom Macy's and all the other ones fell. And really we spent, I think I just got back from like, I think it was my 26th trip from Asia in the past four years. So Riley and I just spent a boatload of time over there building those relationships. So when the opportunity presented itself in promo and sort of learning about this space, and we did have, you know, a lot of the operation and the organization was already sort of built. So to answer your question about first employee, we've actually only had employees for the last three years. So our first employee was a guy named Bart, who's still with us, he's a man, he's our marketing director. And he handled like basic social media and stuff like that. And then slowly from there, we just continued to add people as needed and you know, there's just still so much for us to do and so much room to grow. You know, it's daunting at times, but it's so exciting and so much fun. I saw in your bio your geographic location helped in a way, too. I saw that you were in a, like, a technology startup. Like, how did that help? I mean, that obviously, I think, you know, obviously there's not very many cities that have those. I think Techstars is up to six or eight now, plus London. And then this other side thing that you guys got into <laughs> All the all the words that I'm yeah, not being able yeah. to use correctly right now, but what does it look like to go through that? Is it very similar to like a Techstars where you, you know, basically have an accelerated program of, you know, six or ten weeks, what have you, and then they teach you how to pitch and get your pitch deck and you, you know, stand on a stage and kind of shark tank it? Or was it different than that? And how did that help you? So it was kind of an interesting situation. So basically we were students at the University of Washington. So everything we did was through the university. And because it's in Seattle, I mean, they're just a great community of tech leaders that are looking to help out, you know, young entrepreneurs. And so I, I don't think there's a lot of apparel startups here in Seattle, but, you know, we really did get some fantastic mentorship from people that were, you know, in the Seattle tech community. And so the accelerator we did was actually another thing through the University of Washington. And more or less, you just get paired with three entrepreneurs, basically, and they kind of help mentor you for a period of time. And it was fantastic. I, I think more than anything, the, the benefits we gained through the accelerator that we did and, and also really through the university as a whole is just, you know, meeting various people that, you know, can open doors for you and also give you the advice when you need it. So we, we feel like we're pretty lucky to have a, a great community of people around us to call with questions when things come up that we don't have an answer for. That's super cool. And that's, I mean, part of promocation is, you know, just mentorship and education. So I love hearing that you had a success story that, you know, was built around, you know, building your network and growing your skills through the experience of a mentorship, you know, pair or, you know, trifecta kind of thing. Cool. So awesome. 
Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Jake, tell me about what channels have been really successful for you in the promotional product space from a marketing and sales perspective. Yeah, it's a great question. And one that we're really exploring rapidly, and and I don't think we really have the answers for it yet. But ESP and Sage, all that was totally new for us, obviously entering the space. I think that was the first thing we really got up and rolling and, and right away started seeing results from there. A lot of the other things, I mean, I guess on a more basic level too, the trade shows has probably been our most successful channel so far, just because we found that a lot of distributors really are looking for stock suppliers. The category is really taking off and then there just really isn't a good stock supplier out there. So that's been really valuable for us just to get out there, show people the product and really be able to explain to them when it's in front of them, what's the difference. We're bringing a lot of the stuff that we do on the retail side of the business over into promo in terms of our digital marketing efforts and doing some pretty exciting stuff there, but it's all fairly new. And most of that's really based off, uh, or, or really new for, for us, you know, we'll, we'll see how successful it is. But, you know, really for us, we really believe we do have, you know, by far and away the best product, the best customer service, you know, really, there's really no reason that, you know, if you do have a stock order that, you know, we can't fulfill what your customer wants best. So for us, it's really at this point, just rapidly educating the market that, hey, we're here, we exist, and we really would love the chance to, to earn your trust and to enter your business. Right. So when you mentioned some of the things you're doing on the retail side, like, is that specifically around digital marketing? Like, are there some specific social tactics that have worked really well for you in retail that you're now starting to see gain traction for you in the promotional side? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's relatively basic, but some of the stuff is pretty cool that we're doing. So, you know, a lot of our display advertising, we're having a lot of success retargeting, you know, a lot of our landing pages. So like, for example, if, you know, ASI sends out an email blast, we're going to send them to our landing page. And then, you know, if we can have that customer engage on that landing page first try, great. But we're finding a lot of success by retargeting that distributor. So essentially, you know, as they might leave our landing page, but they're going to start seeing, now that we know that they know what Stradlin is, they're going to start seeing advertisements on all right. the other sites that they might visit, yeah. them back to a different landing page, all that kind of stuff. And it's all really, we've only really started doing it in the past couple months on the promo side, but the early results have been really promising. You know, it's so interesting to me and Charity, I know that you've got some perspective on this, that I think it's really important for a supplier to have a very mixed marketing strategy that incorporates some of the more traditional approaches like a trade show. Uh, certainly trade shows have been around for a long, long time. And there's lots of people who will talk about the demise of the trade show. Like trade shows, uh, not where the new up and comer young distributors are going to because they're just way too busy for it. And I don't know if that's necessarily fully the truth. But there certainly are some people that will talk that way. And then, you know, email marketing, you could also say is fairly traditional, but then you then combine that with retargeting, which is fairly new school. And of course, all the things you're doing on social. And so it's less of a question and maybe just more an observation. And I think that, you know, you as a new and brash and exciting supplier that a lot of people haven't seen, it's interesting to me that you're getting so much traction using some pretty traditional tried and true marketing tactics as opposed to going exclusively new school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, and the truth is really we're trying absolutely everything to see what works. And I think, you know, the, the thing that we learned most from retail is just taking a really disciplined approach to your marketing. So, you know, really making sure that we not only try out different, you know, various marketing products, but we have the systems in place to really analyze the success of those programs. And it's interesting to see like some of the advertisements that we might buy, you know, might cost, you know, maybe a display ad on ASI might cost 1500 bucks. 
and, you know, some other products from, you know, on Distributor Central or something might be significantly cheaper. But these are just random examples. I'm not saying this is the case. But, you know, we've found time and time again that the price doesn't necessarily correlate with the visitors you're going to get or the leads you're going to generate. So it's been really interesting kind of exploring and, and going through that journey. Yeah, for sure. I think like any smart marketer, whether you're in the promotional business or outside of it, will take a really disciplined approach to each channel. And as you say, you may spend... 1500 bucks with ASI and that may be considered expensive and you don't get results or, or you do get results. I'm not, you know, not commenting on ASI per se. And then you compare that against maybe a hundred dollar ad that you may purchase through something else, or maybe even a free post that you put on Facebook that doesn't cost you anything may generate significantly right. more. And I think that the smart marketers today are the ones that are really analyzing those approaches so that they invest and they rinse and repeat if it's doing well, and they cut it if it's not doing well after you know a sustained you know kick of the can. I think there's a couple of things going on that Strideline, and there's a couple other just suppliers and distributors too that are doing it really well. When it comes to advertising dollars, you could have you know this amazing product, and you could be advertising in every single channel that there is to advertise in. But if you don't have a strong call to action in those posts or those ads then there's not going to be any action taken. So if you're not telling people what to do with that information that they're seeing, then people are going to browse over it and they're not going to do anything with it and then they're not going to click on it. You're not going to see the results. Even if they saw the ad and they haven't taken action on it, then you've essentially wasted those marketing dollars. And I think the most beautiful thing about some of these retail-inspired brands and some other suppliers that are doing it well too is that they are using promo to sell promo And even if it's in the digital space, promotional products enhance the entire marketing experience. And socks obviously are huge, and those one-off spec samples are huge. And so all of the ads that I've seen for Strideline are telling me to click on this to get my free pair of socks or, you know, my virtual sample or, you know, whatever it is. They are targeted to the right people, and then they have a, a strong call to action with a product that's interesting. And then the delivery and the execution that they bring to the table is that it marries that digital experience with my real life. As soon as that package shows up in the mail, now I have a positive experience with Strideline and a tangible product in my hand that they've provided me. And then I go back online and say, hey, these are really cool socks. Or, hey, you know, you're asking for socks. I just got one in the mail from Strideline and they're really cool. Check them out. And so you've got this really cool cycle that brings that digital space into reality and then takes reality back into the digital. And I think that's where you've got that exponential growth happening because there's a lot of smart marketing going on and a lot of strong call to actions. And then it's, you know, just all brought together by having a quality product at the end of the day. So there's a lot going on there. But, you know, like you said, Mark, you know, you can be in a lot of places and you can maybe spend a lot of money or not spend a lot of money. But what you do with that ad and what you tell people to do with that ad, I think is going to make a huge amount of difference in the results that you see from the dollars that you spend. Totally. Jake, we could certainly go on all day here. This is I feel like we're just getting started. But out of respect for your time, I'll ask you one more question. And then, Charity, if you've got another question, give you the opportunity to ask it, too. And then we'll turn it over to you, Jake, to let people know where they can find you and learn more about, you know, you and your great products. So I just wanted to give that a heads up. So here's my last question. So things seem to be working really well for you guys right now. Like it's been hockey stick curve growth in the last eight years. You seem to be killing it in retail and promo. So all that's fantastic. But 
I'm interested in knowing what scares the heck out of you in the coming years about your business. Like, what do you and Riley really worry about in terms of something that could put you guys under in the next couple of years? Would you be comfortable sharing that? Yeah, totally. There's a million things you're always thinking about. Right now, I think there's really only one thing that I would say for sure keeps me up at night. And the good news is we're working really quickly to solve this problem. But that is the fact that we built a really, really unique operation in the Philippines. We have a really, really unique relationship with the individual who owns the knitting facility. And then, of course, we have the biggest part of our team is actually based in the Philippines. And, you know, we have the factory there. So, you know, what scares me is that it's really hard to duplicate what we built, which in a lot of ways is one of our biggest strengths. I mean, there's a reason that it's going to be difficult for people to dive into the stock category and offer what we can offer. Certainly, they can figure it out, but it's going to take them a lot of time and a lot of work. So if there was a fire or a, you know, huge typhoon and, you know, that factory was not operational for a number of months, we'd be in big trouble. So, you know, one thing we're working really hard right now to do is to basically essentially just diversify and build another facility. We're deciding if we want to do that in the U.S., which hopefully we're going to be able to figure out. We're, uh, we're actually heading out to Utah next week to go look at a potential facility or potentially somewhere else in the world. So that's, that's definitely the main thing that keeps me up. Other than that, stocks are relatively, you know, people are, are probably always, I say probably, I guess, I guess people could come up with something else better than stocks, but people are probably going to need stocks for a long, long time. And in that way, there's some protection there. People are always going to need stocks, and we're getting pretty good at making them. I'm excited to watch where this goes and how you stay relevant and really excited to see what you can teach the promotional products industry about how to sell differently. And so I would say as much as you are influenced by how we do things here, just continue to bring your intelligence and your drive and your entrepreneurship into the industry. And just thanks for talking to us and, you know, taking my phone call. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for having me. Really appreciate it. So Jake, for those members of the Promo Kitchen community that are, you know, dying to get in touch with you and learn more about you and Riley and your story and Strideline, like where would you direct them? The easiest way to get a hold of us is just the email promo at strideline.com, and you'll be routed right away to, to the right rep. You can also call us up, and you'll be directed straight to the rep, and that phone number is listed on our website. The one other thing is kind of a long domain name, and I encourage everyone to go check out our online catalog. So that's resellerstridelinecorpcorpcom slash catalog. And that has all of our offering, not just our premium stock, which people know us for, but also our business socks, our economy socks, you know, basically the, the full offering, even in our fully sublimated talks that we do sell. So check that out and, and get a hold of us. And we'd love to send you know anyone a free spec so you can kind of get the product in your hand and see what it is that we're offered. Awesome. Well, hey, Jake, thank you so much for all your time and wisdom. And I also enjoyed your really honest answers, you know, from how to be upfront with distributors, as well as your vulnerability with the story about the Philippines and, you know, the potential challenges of that factory getting wiped out and, and the fact that you're turning that into an opportunity. So Really, really fascinating stuff. And on behalf of Promo Kitchen and our whole community, we wish you all the very best and we certainly thank you for your time. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.